Well, we're going to have a look at Philemon, and this is a really interesting situation, that there's Paul in prison, and in prison he's met with this, this guy, this uh, runaway uh, slave called Onesimus, and he's converted him, he's become Paul's son in the faith, and then it turns out that actually Paul, it seems, knows the master of Onesimus, this Philemon, and he has converted Philemon many years ago, or sometime previously anyway, because he says to Philemon here, you owe me your own soul. Um, so it was a, a strange coincidence of events that there's Paul in prison in Rome, and there's this uh, guy ends up in, in jail with him who is a runaway slave called Onesimus, and Paul converts him, and it turns out, oh yeah, I know your master. I baptized your master. So it's a uh, a divinely arranged uh, set of coincidences, to put it mildly. And then it comes that Onesimus has to go back to his master, and Paul is in this difficult situation, because what's he going to say? And of course Onesimus doesn't really want to go back and be reconciled, and so Paul is writing to Philemon, and as I read it, he's asking Philemon to uh, accept Onesimus now as a brother, therefore not to punish him, because he could have punished Onesimus with, with death. That was a punishment for runaway slaves. And yet it seems to he's asking uh, Philemon to allow Onesimus to be Paul's personal kind of servant. That's how I read the situation here in this letter. And all the way through, we keep encountering... A, a whole load of teaching that's really relevant for us about grace and our relationships with each other and how God's grace should lead us practically to relate to each other. So I want to go through this quite fascinating, very densely written uh, letter and just pick out a few, um, a few things. He says in verse 5 that he hears about your love, the love of Philemon, and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. That is uh, from the RV. So Philemon has faith toward Jesus and toward all the saints, all the believers that are in Christ. And of course Paul is sort of working his way round to saying, so therefore if you have faith in all the saints, well believe me and also believe in uh, your new brother Onesimus, your runaway slave, that he has uh, he's come good, and just believe in him, accept him, trust him again, because in verse 18, Paul says, whatever he's uh, wronged you of, what he's uh, diddled you out of, put that on my account. Uh, so Onesimus had presumably not just run away, but he'd probably stolen something and caused uh, loss and damage materially to Philemon. And so Paul is saying, well, I hear that you have faith in Je uh, uh, toward Jesus and toward all the saints. And so I'm asking you to, uh, to just believe in the conversion of Onesimus. I think the point for us is that our, atti our attitude toward the Lord Jesus is our atti attitude toward all the saints, and vice versa. That if you have trust toward Christ, or faith toward Christ, you therefore have this, he says, verse 5, toward all the believers. This is really putting in other words what John makes explicit in, in his writing, under inspiration, of course, that um, our attitude to others 
is our attitude to the Lord Jesus. I mean our attitude to, to other saints, as he calls it here, other believers. And there is a strong tendency, I think, in all of us, some parts in our lives and some parts of our lives, some, some periods of our lives and some aspects of our lives, to think, well, I, I believe in Jesus. Uh, my faith is quite intact. My relationship with him is quite in order. I pray. I read his word. I try to live in my own way before him. It's just all the others. Um, but actually, it's the, those irritating all the others that are in his body that are actually there to test us. That our attitude to our brethren and sisters is set up there in the bigger picture, in the providence of God, as the sort of ultimate test, I think, of whether we really do believe in him and whether we really love God. Because you know what John says, if you don't love your brother, you don't love God. And so I think Paul is here touching on that same idea, saying that our faith, our belief towards the Lord Jesus is therefore also connected to our faith towards all uh, that are in him, all the saints that, that are in him. So going on to verse 6, uh, again it's so densely written that the fellowship of your faith may become effective by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you in Christ. Now what's really being said there, trying to unpack it, I, I think he's saying that the communication, I think that's the idea of that word fellowship there, the sharing, the sharing of your faith becomes energized energizo is that word behind uh, effective, it becomes energized by the recognition by others of every good thing which is in you in Christ so he's saying I think that the power, the integrity, the energy of our witness is energized, is made powerful by others recognizing in us every good thing that is in us and of course he's saying, I think, um, that your preaching of the gospel, the witness that you're making, um, the sharing, the, the communication of your faith which you do, uh, is, is really given integrity by others recognizing or acknowledging the good things that are in you in Christ. In other words, if you don't accept this brother, how is that going to be a communication of your faith? Now, our community, unfortunately, has had a long, sad history of exclusive, exclusive attitudes towards our brethren. And it's more than time to just recognize that, for me at least, because we can only answer really for ourselves, uh, I'm through with that. That I will not exclude those for whom Christ died. And whatever it costs us, costs us your family, your marriage, whatever it might be, that has to be the case. We cannot exclude Christ's brethren. Well, we can do, but we are basically excluding ourselves from him. This is absolutely crucial. This is the essence of Christianity. Because we are given our brethren and sisters for a purpose. They're not just sort of there as the background. Our attitude to the body of Christ is our attitude to him. And if we love him and we wish to be accepted in him, we must accept our brethren. There, there is no, it's not like, well, yeah, that would be nice, that's the ideal. I mean, this is, this is the whole essence. And this is why Jesus can say that the unity that comes as a result of that will be our witness to the world.
So I think what Paul is getting at here, and he, he's being very diplomatic and indirect, but I think what he's saying is that the, the communication or the sharing of your faith, the, the witness that you're making, becomes effective. It becomes of integrity, of, of meaning, by others uh, acknowledging the good things which are in you in Christ. And if you reject your new brother Onesimus, Philemon, that ain't going to happen. That's, I think, what he's, what he's saying. Now, let's remember that Onesimus may well have had a reason for running away from his master. Philemon may well have been uh, pretty tough with him, because Onesimus was a slave, and this was first century Roman Empire, and uh, it could be that Philemon's relationship to this man, to this brother now, was really um, the test of the essence of his Christianity. Now, he, Paul says in verse 7, uh, We have great joy in your love. I, I'm reading from the AV here. Because the bowels of the hearts of the saints are refreshed by you, brother. Now, there's a few words there. Joy, brother, refresh, bowels, or heart. Uh, four words there that occur or recur in verse 20. Yea, brother, let me, Paul, have joy of you in the Lord. Refresh my bowels, my heart, in Christ. So then I think what Paul is uh, saying there is that he wants to be treated like... Um, So, I think what Paul is saying there is that he recognizes that Philemon has refreshed the hearts of a lot of brethren. Uh, he's done a lot of good. Um, but he's saying, Paul is saying, and I'd like you to do that to me too. So then, Paul doesn't exactly feel that Philemon has refreshed his heart in Christ, but he recognizes that Philemon has done that for others. Now, I think that's an important uh, thing to bear in mind in our relationships with others, that we may be terribly hurt or, let's say, disappointed by others' behavior towards us. And I think Paul here was disappointed, really, that Philemon was like this. He says, you know, I remind you, buddy, that you owe me your own soul, your own eternity. Um, so I think he was disappointed, just like we get disappointed in, in others. But he did recognize that although he had not been uh, particularly well treated by this brother, uh, this brother had actually done a lot of good to others. And I, I think that that's very necessary, to be positive about others, even those who have disappointed us, those who have failed us. That we should recognize that they have done good and do do good to others. I, I think if we're not like that, if we judge people or form opinions or whatever, or feelings about people purely on the basis of what they have done to us, then we're not only being very narrow and missing the bigger picture, um, but we're also being totally self-centered, that I will judge you on your attitude to me. I, I will, you know what I mean by judge, I don't mean condemn, I mean how we all do as you go through life, that form an opinion 
of someone on the basis of uh, what they have uh, done to me or how they've related to me. I, I feel that with what we read about Paul, uh, that all those in Asia turned away from him. Well, they did, well, that's what he says, so presumably they all did turn away from him, but um, those very same ecclesias in Asia, Jesus writes to them, and he clearly commends at least some within those ecclesias as being in fellowship with him and holding on. So those individuals had failed Paul, quite clearly, but they had not, in the bigger picture, failed Jesus. I think this is really important because it's easy to say, do you know what, he did so-and-so to me, she did so-and-so, could you believe it, she did this to me, he did that. Yes, and all that may be true, but that is not to write off a person totally from Christ or as not being any longer our brother or sister. Now, I, I know from plenty of experiences I'm sure you have got that this is all not so easy in practice. But I see here a great example there. If you compare, as I say here in Philemon, verse 7 with verse 20, he says, uh, The hearts, the bowels, hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. And then he says, verse 20, Let me have this joy of you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Brother. So, <clears throat> he goes, uh, goes on there and... Uh, in verse 10 to say that he beseeches Philemon I beseech thee for my son Onesimus whom I have begotten in my bonds in, in prison I beseech you well this is that Greek word parakleo and it's uh, very uh, well known I suppose to us uh, from John talking about the Lord Jesus as our parakletos as our comforter, as our interceder, as our beseecher of the Father. Now, I've suggested elsewhere that on average, once every two or three verses in his writing, Paul is alluding to the Gospels, and I, I'm sure it's even more than that. Uh, that's just my analysis. So, I would imagine that when Paul says, I am beseeching you, Philemon, I am, you know, this paracleo to you. Uh, I think that he must be alluding to how the Lord Jesus is our parakletos, our beseecher uh, towards God in, in heaven. So, I think what, uh, what Paul is, is trying to say is that we should be open to others beseeching us. In the same way as God is open to Jesus beseeching him for us. And we should respond with the same sort of grace and lavish response that Jesus uh, achieves for, for us in his beseeching of God on our behalf. So, you know, here Paul is saying, I'm beseeching you on behalf of Onesimus. This is absolutely the... Uh, the language of Jesus interceding on our behalf. So the, the same old you know, basic thing, isn't it, that uh, when we are beseeched, when we are asked, particularly for forgiveness, this has got to mirror the experience that we have from heaven of God being besought by Jesus for us 
and being forgiven. And very often, as it worked out here, uh, we are approached often by third parties in life, uh, as it was here uh, by Onesimus uh, coming to Philemon through Paul, uh, as it were. Incidentally, talking about allusions back to the Gospels, in verse 11, I think you've got another one, where he says, uh, he was unprofitable to you. He was an unprofitable servant to you. He was an unprofitable slave. Verse 11. Well, any other time you get the idea of unprofitable servant is in Matthew 25, verse 30, where the Lord teaches that we are all unprofitable servants, um, and the unprofitable servant is going to be thrown out into outer darkness. You, you'd remember how it goes that um, in the parable, the uh, the master of the house is is at home, and uh, the the uh, the servant comes in and must do everything for him uh, to prepare for him, etc. And then he must eat afterwards. And then when you've done all, Jesus says, you are to see yourself still as an unprofitable servant. And yet the unprofitable servant elsewhere in the teaching of Jesus is the one who's cast into outer darkness. So in one sense, whilst we should be confident of salvation by grace, when it comes to our works, when we have done all, we are still, if that was all there was to us, we would still be unprofitable servants and condemned. So in one sense... Jesus is saying, you are the unprofitable servant. And so I think uh, he's sort of getting at that here, where he's saying to Philemon, yes, Onesimus is the unprofitable servant to you, um, but aren't we all, without Christ's grace, aren't we all unprofitable servants? And time and again, if we have this a sense of our own uh, failure, a sense of our own uh, worthiness of condemnation on our own, in our own works and in our own strength, this will help us in dealing with others whom we consider to be also unprofitable servants. That recognition that in fact we all are this, that in every case that comes across our path where we have to forgive this person or consider how we are going to relate to them and react to them and feel about them, in every single case we have to remember that, in essence, I am the same. The form of the failure is, of course, different. But, in essence, I also have sinned and am the unprofitable servant who should be cast into outer darkness. But for God's grace, which makes all the difference. Verse 12. <coughs> I mean, Paul really makes the point quite uh, quite clearly that they should receive and that, that Philemon should receive um, Onesimus verse 12 whom I have sent back to thee in his own person uh, thou therefore receive him that is my own heart receive him and yet you've got the same thing in, in verse 17. If you then count me therefore a partner, a fellowshipper, a, an in-fellowship person, receive him as myself. For surely Paul is alluding to what he wrote to the Romans some years before that in Romans 15 verse 7, where he says, Receive one another as God for Christ's sake has received us. 
It's the same, same words. Clearly, I think Paul must have this, uh, this in mind. Receive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has received us. If we have been received by God, we should receive others who are you know, in Christ. And of course, in fairness, from Philemon's point of view, uh, he would have been sceptical. I mean, rightly so, probably, about Onesimus. He's a runaway slave who'd run off uh, having stolen something, it seems, as I say from verse 18, when Paul says, look, if he's uh, wronged you at all, put that on my account. If he owes you anything, okay, let me settle that. Um, which incidentally indicates that Paul was not um, not a pauper, exactly, to, to, to say that with uh, integrity. Um, the, my, my point is that from Philemon's point of view, he was probably right to be somewhat sceptical on a human level about Onesimus. Um, and yet he's asked to receive him as God received Philemon. Him that is weak in the faith, Paul again wrote to the Romans, receive. And he almost could have been writing to Philemon when he said that. But not to what the AV calls doubtful disputations. Make it a one-off decision in your mind. I'm going to accept and receive this person even though I'm sceptical about them. Now, what does it mean to receive them? Does it mean you put a paedophile in charge of a Sunday school, or, or a, f a financial swindler in charge of the, uh, the accounts? Not at all. That's not quite the same as receiving somebody. We are to receive others who are weak in the faith, or of whom we are rightly sceptical, in the same way as God has received us for Christ's sake. In other words, to accept that person as being a member in the body of Christ. I, I think that's, that's what it's saying. Now, he says that Philemon would receive Onesimus forever. Uh, verse 15 perhaps he therefore departed for a season that you should receive him forever not now as a servant but as a brother beloved the idea of everlasting uh, reception is clearly to, to try to prod Philemon to think of how we will be received forever in, in the kingdom and because of that we should receive others now now, in verse 12, he says that, Philema, that Onesimus, Paul says, is my own heart. He is me. And so he seems to be saying, if you accept me, then you must accept him. And he says that explicitly in verse 17. If you then count me a partner, a fellow shipper, someone who is in your fellowship, receive him as myself. And yet he, he sort of continues this idea of one person representing another in verse 13. He says, I would like to have kept Onesimus with, with me, that in your stead, that in your behalf, in your name, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without your permission, I, I wouldn't do this. So he says in verse 13 then that 
if Onesimus is allowed to stay and serve him uh, and be his helper there in prison, this would, as it were, be Philemon. That Onesimus would represent Philemon. But he also is arguing that Onesimus represents him, that is Paul. So we see here the the colossal implications of being in the body of Christ. That if we are in Christ, we are his representative, yes, but we are also the representative of the body of Christ, which is the community. So each person who is baptized into the Lord Jesus is part of that body and in that sense represents others. If you see what I'm saying, it's a complex argument that Paul's using here, but it's a very very powerful one when it comes to accepting the brother about whom we may rightly feel sceptical. That that brother represents and is in fellowship with the brothers who we think are okay, the people we're not sceptical about, like the Apostle Paul. And also that brother can represent us, does represent us, because he is in that same body. This is a whole, uh, I know the body is a different analogy, uh, but it's uh, saying the same thing, that no part of the body is independent from another. No part, as you know, Paul says, uh, can say that I don't need you that I'm independent of you, that you're just nothing to me. No, that's not the case. And he, you know, he goes on, you know what he says, that those parts which seem weaker are in fact more necessary. And this is really, again, he could have been writing that to, to Philemon about this anathemus business. So then, to say to someone who's part of the body of Christ, I won't fellowship you. I'm not going to break bread with you apart from being childish and uh, immature uh, this is really signing ourselves out of the body of Christ this is why this is so important you know, our attitude to our brethren is eternally important and that is a reflection and an indicator of our attitude to God and you can't have it another way I'm fine with God but yet yeah, you know stuff the rest of them <laughs> no you know, our community, our personal experiences may be littered with examples of people who have done just that and it's not brought them any happiness in the end and it's not really furthered God's glory or his purpose at all on this earth so then he, uh, he goes on to, to say well you know Uh, I ask you to do this, and if you count me, verse 17, if you count me uh, as a partner, and that is this uh, Greek word koinos, koinonos, or one in fellowship, receive him as myself. It's as if Paul is going so far as to say, if you don't accept him, then you are effectively not accepting me. So all this business about saying, I won't break bread with you, but I will break bread with with him or with her, this is complete nonsense. If we say I will like if Philemon had said, I will not fellowship with Onesimus, then Paul is saying, Well, if that's what you say, you're really not treating me as if I'm in fellowship. 
all this grief about these fellowship games is, is all resolved if we simply say, fellowship, whoever's in the body of Christ, whoever's baptized properly into Jesus, that's my brother and sister, that's the boundary, that's the end of it. And stop playing all these silly games and adding so much else that is just, just a, a way of justifying human uh, feeling against certain individuals and justifying our own sort of gut reaction of, of dislike of certain people, etc. And he, he says to Philemon, uh, you know, if he owes you anything, or put that on my account, um, I really will repay it. He says, verse 19, here's my signature. But, uh, well, by the way, you owe me even your own self. Verse 19. Just think about that. It, it means that we can be responsible for this eternal salvation of others. Uh, of course, in a sense, Jesus is the Saviour. Uh, of course he is. But uh, in, in another sense, we are the ones who bring salvation to others. And if we do not do that job, I don't think you can say that God will do it anyway. Not necessarily. The talents have been given to us, and according to how much or how well, if you like, we trade them, so the Master's work and wealth goes forward. And if we leave them on the ground, they will not be traded. They will not increase to his glory. And so, in one sense, the salvation of others depends upon our preaching to them. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, so we preached, and so you believed. We are to be, as Proverbs 11.30 puts it, a tree of life to those with whom we live, winning people for the kingdom. He wrote, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, that they would be accepted in the kingdom because our preaching among you was believed. And if we are the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ, represented by Eve, Evia, in the Latvian Bible. Uh, and, and her name means source of life. We are to be the light of this world. I know Jesus is the light of the world, but we are to be that light of the world as well. In that, we are at the cutting face, if you like, of taking this salvation to people. And in that sense, the person that's converted owes their converter an irrepayable debt. I mean, it really is like that. And so Paul is almost joking. He says, look, if he owes you a little bit of money, a few coins, <laughs> sure, I'll pay that. But you know, you owe me eternity. Uh, and just positively, I mean, that brings out the wonderful power of preaching. Even if in the course of our lives we... I say only, in, in inverted commas, we only manage to bring one person to the Lord, uh, to eternity. Or we play our role, because, I mean, it's multifactorial these days in the preaching of the gospel. It's, uh, everybody plays a different role, a different part, and maybe no one person these days can claim very often that uh, I converted this one or that one, um, yeah, because it's so multifactorial. Uh, with so many people playing a part but all the same all the same in the bigger picture that person's eternity depends upon you or me 
and therefore we will rejoice forever and ever with that person. And that's why Paul can say, you are my rejoicing forever and ever. You are my crown. You will be my crown of rejoicing in the kingdom. So then, let's start to wind up. Uh, Philemon was, uh, well, maybe he'd been pretty tough with Onesimus, who knows, and he was certainly needing a lot of persuasion from Paul. Um, but it seems to me that you could argue that he was not a bad brother and not a bad uh, bloke, as it were, because from verse 5 it's quite clear that uh, he had a good reputation. All the uh, other believers recognized that he had a lot of faith toward Jesus and toward all the believers. He, he trusted and believed in the other brothers and sisters. Um, people recognized the good things that were in him in Christ. He has uh, refreshed the hearts of the, the, the believers, the saints, verse 7. And um, you could uh, argue that um, there was uh, the ecclesia was the church that was in his house. So he had converted his wider family uh, to the Lord. And when he talks there about the beloved Aphia, uh, beloved there, agapete, that's, uh, that would imply the Aphia is uh, um, a female. Uh, actually, in the RV it says that, verse 2, to Aphia, our sister. Uh, that could well be his, uh, his wife, who was also a, a believer. And as I say, that the church in your house, verse 2, uh, could mean his physical house, or it could mean... Um, his household that had all been converted so then you know you could say he's a pretty good guy and he'd done his thing and uh, etc but it could be that despite all that good works love and care towards others preaching, converting your family being an upright citizen etc that Providentially, it was arranged that this man was going to meet his, the essence of his issue that he had to face in his life. And that was his attitude to Onesimus. His attitude to his brother. This was going to make or break him. That despite all those good works and believing the gospel and having been converted from darkness to light and converting his family and being kind and generous... Uh, and, and loving to, to the brothers and sisters uh, that actually his attitude to this one brother could actually destroy him forever could actually be enough to put him right out of the, uh, the orbit of God's family by refusing to accept him and so I think it can be with us that we may on some uh, indicators be living a very good life but I have this theory that God brings your kind of uh, bête noire, uh, uh, as it were, into your life. That, that for each of us there may be one thing, or one person, or one weakness that we have to struggle with. I know Dennis Gillett uh, used to say this um, uh, about Hebrews 12, let us run with patience the race that is set, set before us, um, and lay aside... The, uh, the weight that uh, 
that every weight that these sin that uh, so easily besets us and Dennis used to claim that there, there was a specific sin that uh, each of us had a struggle with and that uh, may be the case but I, I, I wonder if it's a bit wider than that and there is actually different people <coughs> with whom we've got to, to cope with and, and deal with and our attitude to them kind of reflects our whole attitude to God um, you can see it, I think, clearly between Peter and John, and I think they, they dealt with it well. Um, David and Saul, and I think in the end David dealt with that. Um, Jacob and Esau, and I think Jacob dealt with that badly uh, for the most part of his life. Um, I think with Philemon, the issue was Onesimus. Uh, and I, I just see it in people's lives it could be a divorce situation with a, a partner or an in-law or sadly even a child or, or a parent um, or someone in, in the family someone in the ecclesial family there is someone there uh, th that is raised up by God or some situation that is raised up by God to really check you out, to really bring you to the essence of whether you have really believed the gospel in your heart, whether you have really accepted grace, whether you have really accepted God's great salvation of you. Um, and that uh, situation, person, issue that's there in your life is there, designed by God in a providential way to, check, to, to test you out and to bring it all real. And I mean, the whole coincidence of all this was just huge, that Paul had converted Philemon, and then Philemon has a runaway slave who ends up with uh, Paul in prison in Rome. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, coincidence. And so the coincidences in our lives are breathtaking at times. You think, how on earth could that have happened? But clearly God is in it. And God, as Job says, works oftentimes with man um, to bring about these tests really of the degree to which we've grasped the simplest wonder that by grace I am saved by grace he has done exceeding abundantly above all that I could ask or think and uh, that is the whole thing here is a test of whether I really believe that and we each of us now start to look at ourselves and I believe that we likewise struggle with this issue of whether I really am forgiven, I really am received by God forever, I shall live eternally, but insofar as we do begin to slowly grasp the wonder of that we realise that it must radically affect our dealings with others thank you